Well, it's been five weeks since uh, we had a sermon in the series that we're now returning to. We had four weeks of Advent and one week to prepare us for the new year. But I intend now for several weeks to return us back to the conversation that we began, which was looking at the church according to Scripture seeing how the Scriptures have revealed this thing called the church in the Old Testament and in the New, and letting that be the definition that we work with as a church family, that we would be the kind of church that is described in Scripture. And so we've been working our way recently through the Gospels with Advent in mind, But I pick up there with that same view of who Jesus is, the signs that predicted Him, the signs that revealed Him. And now we see this morning in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that same image of how the church began with a curious people who've heard these wonderful things about Jesus being the Messiah that he'd begun to prove himself through signs and miracles. And this morning, we have one of those miracles to behold. We have one of those miracles to consider. It's one of his healing miracles. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels because it's filled with so much drama, so much beauty, so much wonder. You know, it's not unusual for a story to have a story within the story, a nested story, they call it, an embedded narrative, it's been called. Some stories are fictional, and there are good fictional stories. But I think the best stories are true stories. And that's what we have in our reading this morning. We have a true historical narrative which is a great story about a great Savior who has authority to forgive sins. And within it is a lesser story, but an important story about great friends who were determined to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus. Listen carefully to this story. If you've heard it before, if you know the story, work hard to hear it with fresh ears the beauty and wonder of what's been revealed to us. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And He preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, 
Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in His spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And He said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so He said to the man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, you amazed that room of people, showing them the authority to forgive sins and the power to heal legs. Would you amaze us? Would you show us a picture of our great salvation in Christ? And would you even challenge our friendships? We ask this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, playfully, I call this my great sermon. I playfully call it that because it has 12 points. There are 12 points to this sermon. Now, don't turn the TV off yet because there are 12 quick points. But I call it my great sermon because in the 12 points, each of the 12 points begins with the word great. So, here we go. My great sermon. Twelve points that are great in this story. Number one, we have a great problem. And by great, I mean a severe problem. Not an ordinary problem, but a severe problem. A great problem. And that is, there is a paralyzed man, it says in the NIV, a paralytic. That means that this person did not have the use of their legs. That means that they had to be carried around by others. And to be paralyzed in any time in history is a difficult and very difficult thing. But particularly here, you would be dependent upon the mercy of others to meet your needs. And so we have a man who is paralyzed. But we have a great opportunity that arises in this story. And the great opportunity is that Jesus has come home. He's returned returned to Capernaum or Capernaum. And there's been word that this Jesus has had power to heal people of physical infirmities. It's as if the blind are made to see, that the lame have been made to walk, that the demon-possessed have been made clean and pure of what haunted them. It's as if all the things Isaiah promised are coming true in this person. 
And so there's great hope in this opportunity that Jesus had come back to town. And Jesus has found his way into a home. Some think that it's Peter's home. We don't know that it's Peter's home. It could very well be Peter's home. But he's found, him way, found his way into a home. And these homes were not large. Uh, commentators will say it was probably a 15 foot by 15 foot room probably no more than a 20-foot by 20-foot room just based on the archaeology and what we know of buildings in that era. But it is a packed room. It is a room filled with people who are curious to see this Jesus and to hear what He has to say. And the passage says that He was teaching. He was preaching. So Jesus is in a room. And it's probably standing room only. Because the crowds in that day did the opposite of what we do. The teacher then would have sat and the crowds would stand and listen. We do the opposite of that. But it is a standing room only crowd. And they are curious. The room even includes the religious leaders of the day who are especially curious to hear what this supposed Messiah has to say. Someone, and we don't know who, had a great idea. If the Messiah, if this one who has power to heal is in town, how about if we take our paralyzed friend to see him? It was a great idea. Why would you not do this? And so four friends, somebody, one of, the th- one of the four, convinced them, let's get our friend and let's carry him to Jesus. And they would do that. And they would find their way to the house and to the doorway of the house. But as they reached the door, and it was standing room only, No one would clear the way to make room for this man. Now, playfully, we could say this clearly wasn't the southern part of Capernaum because southerners would get out of the way and make room for someone. But actually, there's something to be said here about these people not making way for the paralyzed man. We know elsewhere in Scripture that the thinking of the day was that if you suffered from an infirmity, it was either your fault or your ancestors' fault. In the Gospels, Jesus is approached regarding a blind man. And Jesus is asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was the mentality of the day. It essentially was, if you suffered from a severe infirmity, well, it was your fault, and you had it coming, or it was your family's fault. And so there was no compassion to clear the way for this paralyzed man. As far as they were concerned, he could stay outside and not interrupt their time of listening to the rabbi. And that was the heart of the people. There was no heart for the paralyzed man. Now, here's where I think the story gets very interesting as we hopefully start thinking about our own friendships and the kind of friends that we are. Because these four men carrying the paralyzed man on a mat, they're met by the full room, they're not allowed in, and they don't give up. 
And I just challenge my own thinking and think, you know, what would I do at that point if I was one of the four friends? Would I be the guy who said, well, we gave it a good try and it just didn't work out. Maybe there'll be another time, a better time to try this. But I wasn't there, and whoever was there didn't have the loudest voice that thought like me, because somebody had a great idea. They had a great idea that though the room is full, we could go to the side of the house where there are usually steps that go up to the roof. The roof served as a kind of patio or what we would know as a porch area where people could sit and you could access the roof on the side of the house. And somebody had the thought, one of the four friends surely had the thought of, wait a minute, if they won't let us in the door, we can get on the roof and we can send him through the roof somehow. And lo and behold, that's what they did. They carried the man, they put him on the roof, they're on the roof with him. And remember what was said, this is not a big room. And these were not going to be 10 foot tall ceilings. And so there are four men and a paralyzed man on a stretcher. There are five bodies on top of this roof. And I've got a feeling as Jesus is preaching and teaching the crowded room, you probably can hear footsteps up there. That's a lot of bodies and a lot of weight on a small room. And as Jesus is preaching that sermon, these friends decided that they were willing to take a great cost. They knew where Jesus was situated in the room, and they decided to what literally the text says is to unroof the roof. To take apart someone else's personal property. And they unroof the roof. They pull at the clay, the tiles, the thatch, all the different materials that would have made up a roof at that time, right about where they knew Jesus would be standing in the room. Now remember, that room is crowded with people. And it's not a huge room. And they probably hear the footsteps... And as the roof is unroofed, there is no doubt that debris is falling on the people in the room. And they probably are not happy about it. And a good sermon was interrupted, no doubt, as Jesus is teaching and preaching about himself. And so these men, as they unroof the roof, I want you to picture this. They're pulling, tearing apart someone else's personal property... And can you imagine the moment that the hole is now big enough that the men digging can look down and see in the room? And at that moment, their faces are exposed to a room of hostile people. How much courage did it take to stick your face in the hole and wave at the people who you've been dropping debris on who already didn't let you in the door? And now they see you finding a way through the roof. These friends paid a great personal cost. And they took great personal risk when they did this for their friend. They were selfless in what they did. 
But what will people think of us didn't stop them from doing what supposedly was the right thing. Now let's stop there for a moment and ask ourselves, how often has that language of, but what will people think, how often has that prevented us from doing the right thing? Or how often has that propelled us into doing a bad thing? These men would not be deterred. They would not stop doing what they thought was desperate and needy for their friend. And they pushed through by faith. And that's what Jesus says. He calls them faithful. In verse 5, we see that these are great, faithful friends. It says that Jesus saw their faith. And it's in the plural. Jesus sees the faith of the friends. He knows that what they are doing, you don't do unless you really believe in the urgency of getting their friend into the presence of Jesus. They were not deterred by the, but what will people think of us? They did the faithful thing. They did the right thing. And now suddenly this paralyzed man on something like a stretcher is dropped down. And by the way, that's a pretty big hole to put in someone's roof. To drop a full-sized man on a stretcher down through the roof. That's a big hole. That's a lot of destruction. They put him before Jesus. It says Jesus sees their faith. And Jesus says something to him. In verse 5, listen again. Since they could not, starting in verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. We read that and we know the conclusion to the story And we hear it as as great news. But as I've thought through this passage, I wonder if that was actually heard as the good news that it was. You can almost hear the paralyzed man saying, my sins are forgiven. I'm here because of a leg problem. He was there because of his felt needs. He was there because of his leg problem. And Jesus starts speaking in spiritual terms about a spiritual condition, not a physical condition. And there's a part of me that genuinely wonders, was the man a little disappointed? Kind of like, but that's not what I came for. I came for my legs and you're talking about my sins. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The story goes on and reveals what can only be called great drama. Listen to this, verses 7 through 11. Uh, Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? Well, what kind of talk are they referencing? They're referencing that Jesus had just said, son, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders heard that and said, he's blaspheming. He is claiming to have the authority that God alone has.
has. And that's what they say. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now listen, here's the drama in verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in His spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And He said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, which is unseeable, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk, which is viewable evidence. Jesus then says, and this is the key to the story, this is what makes the story great, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so He said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now here's the moment of profound drama. Because when Jesus says that with the religious leaders who are hostile to Him in the room, who already are thinking He is a blasphemer, they would know that He is speaking as a prophet. He is saying that you are given legs to walk by My authority. And if that man does not get up and take his mat and walk, the Old Testament indicates that an old that a prophet would be stoned and everybody in there would have known it that Jesus just made a claim that's going to be viewable and if it doesn't happen where are the rocks where are the stones because it's about to get violent that really is what could have happened but Jesus said I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins And it says, the passage says that the man got up, he took his mat, and he walked out of the room. I call this the great divide. Now think about that. That room would not get out of his way to let the man in. But now the room parted like the Red Sea. And he grabbed his mat and he walked out. Who knows, but if he was smiling at everybody in there who wouldn't let him in. And this, for this man, was a great day. An unbelievable day in his personal life, his personal history. The room parted as this man walked out. Now, think about this man for just a moment. If he was disappointed when Jesus spoke to his felt needs, his paralyzed legs, and he said, your sins are forgiven. What would go through this man's mind at the end of this day when he realized Jesus met my felt needs, what I thought was the most important thing in my life, he met that and more. He did more for me than I could even ask Him to do. And I wonder if there are some of us, and no doubt there are, who have had moments in our own lives, and maybe many of them, where we felt a little disappointed in Jesus. Maybe even a little mad at God that He didn't do what we asked Him to do. He didn't meet our felt needs. Our story didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. And I bet there are some of you who have felt that way, some of us who have felt that way, who have seen that the Lord knew what He was doing all along. 
He was doing more than we could ask or imagine. It's not that he, he wasn't answering our prayers and our petitions. It's just that he wasn't prioritizing what we were asking. He had something better, something more, and for our good. That's how the Lord works in the lives of his people. He doesn't just give us what we ask for. He gives us what we really and truly need. And so we have here a great day, a great story. All this evidence of the Lord being more than his people could ever ask for or imagine. That Jesus meets more than our felt needs. He goes down to the deepest, truest, realest spiritual need that we have that we don't even know that we have. And he addresses that as our priority. And our felt needs play a secondary part. I want you to be encouraged. Whatever 2021 has in store for you, whatever 2020 had behind you, can you trust the Lord with it? Can you say, Lord, I've had felt needs and my feelings have been hurt, but now I see, now I see that you are at work. You always know what is best for your people and we will trust you. We will trust you by faith. Benjamin Franklin, you know this quote, some of you know this quote, in 1789, he said, In this world, nothing is certain except for what? Death and taxes. That's what Benjamin Franklin said. We're about to sing a hymn that from a Christian perspective pushes back hard on Benjamin Franklin's sentiment. We're going to sing a hymn originally by William Gadsby, brought back to life and made more singable for us. But it's the hymn, The Love of Christ is Rich and Free. And there's some language in there that, that feels a little bit cumbersome. And I just wanted to highlight it in light of that Benjamin Franklin sentiment. But in there, it speaks of God and the gospel being our everlasting surety. And we don't use that language very much. But what it means is, it's our sure thing. That the gospel for us who have faith in Christ, it is our sure thing. It's our surety. There is more to be believed in and more to have hope in than death and taxes. Maybe Benjamin Franklin didn't understand that, but we hope that you do. That for us, the gospel is an everlasting, sure thing that we can put our faith, our hope, and our trust in. So let's pray, and then we'll sing that hymn and appreciate the beauty of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done in the life of this man in history that you loved this paralyzed man. You made an example of him for the good of your church and for our faith. And we rejoice over that. We thank you for the picture of salvation that is found there. And we thank you for the challenge of true friendship, of four men that would lay down their lives and their reputation for the good of another. And some of us realize we've been pretty crummy friends pretty selfless friends. But Lord, our hope is not in our own behavior. Our hope is in the sure thing of the gospel. 
We've confessed our sins. We've been reminded of our forgiveness in Jesus. And now, Lord, we sing with thanksgiving that it's all true. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.